Welcome to episode 126, creating an ethical, impactful presence outside the therapy room, from books to social media to podcasting, featuring Dr. Joy Harden Bradford, licensed clinical psychologist. For information about the free CE credit associated with this interview, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com. By Clearly Clinical, learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. Today is a very exciting day. I am here with Dr. Joy Harden Bradford, and we are going to be talking about how clinicians can share um, information and experience and knowledge with the world in a way that is ethical, impactful, and responsible. Dr. Joy is a licensed psychologist, speaker, author, media personality, and the host of a very popular mental health podcast called Therapy for Black Girls. She has been featured all over media, um, and Oprah Magazine, Forbes, Bustle, lots of wonderful places because she's just so good at what she does. And I can think of nobody better to talk about this topic with us. I also want to take a moment to thank the National Association for Behavioral Intervention and Threat Assessment, NABIDA, for sponsoring today's episode. NABIDA provides educational support to administrators who strive to make schools safer, and we appreciate their sponsorship. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Joy. Thank you so much for having me, Beth. I'm excited. So why don't we start by you telling our listeners more about you and about your background and then how you started getting into the world of sharing knowledge? Hmm. Yeah, so I am, like you mentioned, a psychologist in living in Atlanta, um, but originally from Louisiana. And I really feel like my love for psychology was born from spending days and hours on the front porch with my grandmother in Louisiana. Just, I think, really instilled in me like a real interest in human behavior and like making up stories about the people that were passing on the streets. Like just, I really feel like that's where my love of psychology came from. Um, and I had the opportunity to take a satellite psychology class in high school and fell in love with it. So then it, it like married the science with what was already, I feel like, very natural for me. Um, and so there has really been no turning back. I thought at one point that I would be on the profession or the professor side, like that I would teach psychology. And then I took like one understudy, like, uh, you know, practicum kind of class in teaching and decided, oh, this is not for me. <laughs> I did not love that idea. Um, and I feel like now what I do is teaching, but in a very it different is. way. Yeah. So, you know, really have just loved kind of, and that I think is one of the things I love most about psychology is that it feels like the opportunities are endless, you know, like to really carve your own path out. And yes, you can do some things like people have done it before, but you can also do something completely different um, in a way that is ethical and responsible, which is what I think we'll be digging into today. That's wonderful. So tell for those of our listeners who aren't familiar with Therapy for Black Girls, please share what that is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Therapy for Black Girls is an online and in some hopefully in some point in real life um, platform that's designed to make mental health more relevant and accessible for black women and girls. Um, you know, so I'm sure most listeners are um, aware of the stigma that can be related to mental health, particularly in communities of color and in marginalized communities. And so it felt really important for me to share this knowledge that I went to school for years to get with people who might not come to the 
the office. Um, and so Therapy for Black Girls was born in 2014 after I watched the Black Girls Rock Award Show. So it's a show award show um, that airs on BET, but it is in person, I think, in New York or New Jersey. And they honor Black women from different facets of life. So entertainers and educators and legislators and all of these people. And the energy in that room was so incredible, even as I was watching it from my living room. And so I thought, wow, wouldn't it be incredible to like capture some of this energy for black women related to mental health? Like, could I come up with something that does this? And so I came up with the name Therapy for Black Girls and I jumped on GoDaddy to see if the domain was available. And it was. So that was like my first sign I was in the right direction. And so I started by blogging on the site. So I started blogging about, you know, how to get the most out of your support system and how to cultivate a support system. What are some questions you would ask when you're looking for a therapist? How do you find a therapist? How do I know if I need a therapist? You know, just kind of general mental health kind of conversations. And then I fell in love with podcasting. So before Therapy for Black Girls was my full-time job, I was the director of the Counseling Center at Clark Atlanta University and had a one-hour commute both ways to my job which is when I fell in love with podcasts. And so I thought, oh, it would be really cool to like maybe turn some of the blog posts that I'm already sharing into podcast conversations. Um, And thankfully, my husband has an experience in radio producing. And so I knew I didn't have to like go outside to get any production help. And so, you know, we put together a couple of episodes and they really have just taken off from there. Um, The community really enjoys the conversations. We spend a lot of time listening to the community for for what kinds of content they want to hear. Um, So the podcast is a huge part of the work we do at Therapy for Black Girls, but we also have an incredible therapist directory. Um, So very excited that we have over 3,000 therapists across the country and in Canada um, who really enjoy doing meaningful clinical work with Black women and girls. And so, you know, again, a part of me listening to my community was listening to them say, it's really hard to find a black woman therapist. Like, where can I find one? Um, and so I, it started with a Google Doc, you know, so I put out a call to the community like, hey, if you're a black woman and if you've had good experience with your therapist, you know, nominate them basically and we'll compile them into this database for other people who might be looking. Um, and then, of course, therapists heard about it and were like, I want to be added to this <laughs> list. <laughs> and it really kind of just took off from there. You know, it, it wasn't too long before it, um, I was, of course, manually like man the Google Doc and it wasn't very long before it became a thing that was not easy for me to manage by myself so then I had to like try to find tech people to like build this thing um, you know so that it could be self-sufficient so that you know the therapist could kind of manage their own listings. You really found a need really mm-hmm. not just with that listing but so I'm, I'm thinking about you know where do we even start with this topic but why don't we start there mm-hmm. it sounds like for you it was a recognition of there was this energy and this um, opportunity to bring people together to connect around a, a concept and then I'm curious what was your process in the entrepreneurial sense of deciding okay it's going to be me I'm going to do this mm-hmm. like it's not somebody else to do it but this is my thing to do now that I've had this idea Hmm. You know, it really is interesting, Beth, because now that I think about it, I have been doing therapy for black girls even before it was called therapy for black girls. Um, you know, my dissertation was on black graduate students and how participating in a black graduate student association really helped to mediate um, any symptoms of depression and anxiety. Um, my 
on every campus that I worked at. So I told you I was at Clark Atlanta, but I've also been on several other college campuses, including Virginia Commonwealth University um, and the University of Georgia. And every campus I went to, I would run a group for the black women on campus, um, you know, to kind of do some outreach. You know, again, going back to that stigma, black women were not coming into the counseling center at the same rate as their peers. And so it felt really important to go to where they were to talk with them about like, you know, how are you doing? And to let them know, hey, these are resources that exist. I'm there. There are other therapists there who can help, you know, take care of you and, you know, support you in any struggles you may be having. And so really, I have been doing therapy for black girls for much of my career. Um, And so I really resisted the idea of making this a business until I had training with other therapists. So the pivotal, I think, turning point for me was I did a training in San Francisco with Allison Salmon Perrier and Tiffany McLean, um, who are two therapists who have done similar kinds of things, right? Like taken their knowledge and now turned it into other things beyond, you know, just direct clinical practice. And so they had a training in San Francisco called Next for a small group of therapists who were looking for the next thing to do. You know, like, okay, my practice is full now what like what do I want to do next and so when I went there I wasn't actually sure what my next thing was like I was hopeful I was hopeful that the training would help me think through some ideas of what I could do but the directory and the podcast both had already been started and so as I was sharing with the group like how much energy there was around the directory and you know how much attention it was getting they all looked at me like what are you doing like this is your thing (laughs) what are you talking about Uh, But I have and still in some ways felt so intimidated by the technology piece of the directory um, because it is just so foreign to me, you know, like coding language and making sure plugins work and all of these things, you know, it just felt so overwhelming. And I think that is why I resisted the idea for a very long time, because it just felt very intimidating to me to be the one who has to kind of try to manage this tech that was going to power the directory. But after I left that weekend, they did not really give me a choice about whether I had to move forward with the therapist directory or not. I think one of the things that you just highlighted there that's really important is the uh, concept of kind of, I guess, a social fabric and connecting with other people that have, well, not necessarily that have done what you wanted to do, but that can see you and can nurture that. Mm-hmm. And, and I've had the same experience of having some colleagues that know me well, but also be able to to appreciate like here's kind of the trajectory of what I want to do and helping me focus it Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm glad you brought up that point and yes and I was smiling when you were talking about the coding because I've had exactly the same experience (laughs) where I'm sitting here at like three in the morning coding going I didn't think this was on my list of things to do Um, but I right but I think that's another important point to bring up as we talk about this topic that it there is this need to uh, expand our skill base mm-hmm. or to use the people around us that have a skill that we need. Right. Like you mentioned with your husband where it's like, okay, you understand this production piece. Right. And, and I think that idea that a lot of this stuff doesn't happen alone. It mm. happens in concert with a, with a team of people, even if they're just the, the, um, the audience that's cheering mm-hmm. us along. I think it's really important. Yes. Agreed. So, when you were thinking about podcasting, how did I mean, at that point, you had a private practice. So mm-hmm. you had your foot in clinical work, and then this idea of having an identity that was very public. 
Mm-hmm. That's challenging for many mental health professionals. How did you wrestle with that idea of, I guess, I know for me, like as a clinician, I value that privacy, you know, and we're very careful about self-disclosure. But then there's this this alternative concept of podcasting and everything is public. How mm-hmm. did you work through that? Yeah, so that wasn't honestly something that I really thought I had to worry about in the beginning. Um, You know, again, my training is as a counseling psychologist. And so there's a huge focus on prevention. And I have a strong background in college student mental health. So a lot of what I did was workshops and presentations and those kinds of things for students. And so in my mind, podcasting was a an outreach activity, mm-hmm. right? So it, it felt very much like the same kinds of things I would do when I went to, you know, speaking to students in the residence halls. And so I didn't really think about having to, um, you know, protect my identity really in the podcast. And I knew that I was going to be having conversations with other therapists. So, um, you know, if you have not listened to the podcast, some of the episodes are solo episodes where I'm, you know, opining about a thing or sharing tips or strategies for some area related to mental health. And in other episodes, I'm having conversations with other therapists. And so I knew that the conversations would be very topic based. So I wasn't worried about doing too much self-disclosing or anything but I think once the podcast really took off and Mm -hmm. became so popular it did become a thing of like oh people really are identifying with me as the voice of therapy for black girls you know sometimes even more than the content itself and I think the turning point for me was really um so at the top of my vision board for a long time was speaking at the Essence Music Festival in New Orleans which is like this you know weekend long concerts at night but like self-help and personal development and beauty and all kinds of workshops during the day and so that had always been on my vision board to speak at Essence Fest and so in 2019 I had the opportunity to be a speaker at Essence Fest. And so I'm walking on the streets of New Orleans with my husband and my best friend and somebody is in front of us and turns around and says, oh my gosh, is that Dr. Joy? And I hadn't thought that people recognize my voice because of the podcast, sometimes even before they recognize my face. And so, you know, just having somebody recognize me from my voice in the streets, I think was a real turning point that, you know, like, oh, this is really something I do have to be mindful of because I am very public now. Um, You know, so I think even more so, I'm very careful with like what kinds of things I share on the podcast. But I think as a podcaster, it is important to be relatable, you know, so people don't, at least my approach to my clinical work and to the work that I do in podcasting is not to be the expert, but really to engage you in conversations and ask questions to help you think. And so I don't ever want to come across like that on the podcast. So I think there is a balance of how do you come across as relatable, but still, um, you know, be the person who does have the training and the expertise to be able to kind of steer people along the right path. Absolutely. For you, there was kind of a social justice imperative as part of this to mm-hmm. reach a community that was otherwise, uh, otherwise ignored, um, mm-hmm. and, and didn't have somebody speaking directly to them. Can you talk more about that element of your work and how you see this as an ethical imperative of the field? 
Mm-hmm. I mean, well, it is an ethical imperative of the field. You know, I'm, a, I'm trained as a psychologist and so I'm, of course, most familiar with that code of ethics. But one of the principles of our code of ethics is justice. And so when I'm talking about um, giving knowledge away, I, I really think it is written into our code of ethics that we be doing more to reach populations who might not traditionally come into our offices for services or who have been less left out of the research studies or left out of these conversations. And so I think it's not just a stretch for me to be doing the work that I'm doing. I think ethically it is what we are mandated to do. Um, you know, so it is, of course, great to be doing the great work that we do with individual and group and couple and all of that. But really, I our ethics in, encourage us and kind of mandate us to be giving some of this knowledge away. And so because so much of my training had been connected to the black community, um, I kind of always knew that this would be a large part of my career. I just didn't imagine that it would look this way. Uh, but again, I think especially in this year, it has really been critical for me to have some of the kinds of conversations I have had on the podcast, um, you know, because as people have been struggling to just keep themselves and their families safe during the pandemic, we know that for the black community, given everything that has happened in terms of racial unjust injustice uh, with police killings and those kinds of things, it has been really important. And I think um, critical for me to be able to offer strategies and space for my community to come together to talk about how do we take care of ourselves, but how do we also take care of one another in this time that is very difficult for so many of us. In the way that you do it, you're you're breaking the walls of therapy. Mm-hmm. And in your podcast, so let's kind of transition and talking about some of the ethics of this. One of the things that's always stood out to me, and this is a law and ethics part of my brain, uh-huh. um, but you say in the introduction, yes. this is not a substitute for therapy. Can right. you talk about that? Have you always done that? Like, yes. how did that come to be that that disclaimer? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So thankfully, I had enough forethought even before the podcast became really popular to know that I needed to have that disclaimer. Um, And, you know, I had listened to enough podcasts and like there were other therapists in the media or doing workshops, things where I had heard people offer this disclaimer. So, you know, that has always been an important part of the introduction to my podcast. And that is something that I would suggest to people who are interested in doing podcasting or public speaking or those kinds of things um, is that you do want to have a disclaimer that lets people know, um, yes, I am a trained professional, but what we are about to engage in is not actual therapy and it's not designed to replace the relationship that you have with a licensed mental health professional. And I think that that's just a good way for you to protect yourself. But I think it also helps to set some boundaries around what this relationship is. And I knew that the kinds of topics we would talk about on the podcast would bring stuff up for people, right? Um, Um, And that's what I want. You know, a part of what we are wanting to do with the conversations on the podcast is to help people think like, oh, could I talk to a therapist about this? Like, is there something that I didn't know maybe I was struggling with that the podcast helped me realize I was? But the other part of that is to point them to resources, which I think is why the directory has been so helpful, um, is that we can have this conversation. And then, you know, I can say, you know, if this is something that you're struggling with, make sure you check out our therapist directory to find somebody in your area to talk with these concerns about. For that directory, and and I'm sure many of our listeners have put together directories like that for different Mm -hmm. communities, different areas. Do you have a disclaimer on that as well that you can independently 
basically vouch for the quality of any of the people that are in the directory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that is also a disclaimer. So we do do some vetting in terms of like making sure people have licenses or they're under the supervision of a licensed professional. But of course, my lawyer um, came up with with the language to protect, you know, the business really mm-hmm. in, in terms of letting people know, like, this is a directory, you know, we don't make any claims of how good these therapists are. We really encourage you to do your own research and things to kind of make sure that they're going to be a good fit for you and that they're in good standing with their states. Because of course, you know, when we check, things may be fine, but, you know, months later, there could be an issue that we don't know about. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that definitely is um, language we have there as well. So another question I have when we're talking about the legal impact, things like insurance. Many of us carry our own insurance policies for our private practice. But what about when we expand our public presence and have things like blogs, podcasting? Does that cover us? Yeah, you know, that's a really funny question, Beth, because I actually had to call my malpractice um, insurance agent to ask, is podcasting covered? And she told me that it was. So I think the insurance agencies that cover us in terms of, you know, therapists in practice are expanding to look at all these other ways that clinicians are showing up in the world as well. I'm glad that we hit on that point and also the importance of just making sure that we have contracts for the things that we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know as you and I were working through what we were going to be talking about today, I have a contract. Right. And and you and I talked about working with an attorney, but I think that those things are very important, better to protect ourselves on the front end than look back retrospectively and go, oh my gosh, you know, I, I agreed to something or somebody agreed to something that they're not comfortable with or something bad happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think considering the uh, liability implications of it is very important. Yeah, that is important. You know, even when you are working with like close colleagues or people who are friends, having things in writing really can save you a world of trouble because, of course, you don't go into anything thinking that the worst can happen. But sometimes bad stuff does happen. And so protecting yourself and your relationship, hopefully, with a contract is really something that I would suggest for people. I think that's a great point. Tell me about working with a lawyer. When did that Mm -hmm. start? What was that like (laughs) for you? I know for me, that was like a new experience to have a lawyer that I was consulting with about things. Yeah, so it it has been a really interesting experience because, again, this is an area that I did not, you know, so she really helps me to think through things that I don't even see for myself yet. So there's a part of working with her that is involved in making sure that I am protecting myself and protecting my license, right? And so there are lots of opportunities that I may turn down because I value my license, right? And I want to make sure that I'm always acting ethically. But there's another piece of the business in terms of protecting your intellectual property that she has been really helpful with you know so um, there have been instances where people have like tried to plagiarize episodes of the podcast or people have been using our name in ways that were inappropriate and so it has been really helpful to have somebody involved with their their area of expertise to really help me to kind of protect this thing that I've built that is so valuable for the community. Can you talk a little bit more about the concept of intellectual property? Because I think for many people, they may not know even what that is. So can you share kind of through your lens, what's your relationship to intellectual property? How do you draw those lines and protecting your work? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think, again, as therapists, we, you know, I think some of us, because of training and maybe kind of naturally who we are, we will often kind of just give away a lot of things for free, right? In the name of like wanting to do good. But when you turn these things into a business, you do have to look at how you protect the things that you have given birth to in some ways. And so um, intellectual property is any kind of information that you are sharing that is originated from you. So when you are doing um workshops like that is your intellectual property so you want to look at whether you need to have your information copyrighted um if there is a name that you have come up with right like therapy for black girls that involves a federal trademark um and so that is an arduous process yep. again something i had no idea about yep <laughs> Right. And so, you know, I know there have been some conversations in like Facebook groups around like, do I need to like trademark my practice name? And for a lot of therapists, like if you are just practicing, probably not. But when you are starting to do things that have a higher profile, like workshops, like speaking engagements, like a podcast, like media interviews and those kinds of things. If you create a separate entity outside of your practice, which I think is a good idea to have those separated, um, then you will want to get a trademark to to be able to protect it because when you have put so much energy and resources into building a thing you want to make sure that you do what you can to kind of protect it and so that's where the intellectual property comes in and trademarking and copywriting and all that stuff i'm really glad you brought up that point um i know for me too that was a challenge having done workshops now for gosh almost a decade on topics like law and ethics and medical necessity and not having done that and then learned that somebody mm. else had taken my material yes. and was training things that I had created. That mm-hmm. for me, that was a painful lesson. That one still yes. makes my heart turn sideways. I like know. my intellectual babies are out in the world and somebody else <laughs> took them and claimed them as their own. Yes. It was hard. And then in my experience, even with Clearly Clinical, of wanting to make sure then that we were doing it correctly and and going through those hurdles of trademarking, Mm -hmm. of copywriting, and now in my clinical documentation stuff, having copyrighted essentially everything. I'm glad you bring up that point because I think as clinicians, we are natural – connectors we're natural uh-huh. healers we're we're naturally like generous people and it's like take take the knowledge right. uh, but the importance of also protecting it and i'm really glad you brought up that point and also even the difficulty of doing that so mm-hmm. for those of you who are creating material and want to copyright it it's actually not that uh it's it's time consuming but it's not that complex of a process and you can also work with an attorney that can help you do that to make sure you're submitting the paperwork correctly but it's not particularly expensive it just takes a long time and waiting. Do you agree mm-hmm. with that? Yeah, well, it can be expensive depending on, so trademarks, um, and of course, I am not a lawyer, but know, of course, all this from working with my own, but you get trademarked in different classes. So if you want to protect your name, yes. if you're going to be selling shirts, then that's one class. But if you're going to be offering classes, that's a different class. Or if you're going to be selling food under this name, then that's a different class. So the price can, you know, kind of get up there. That's a good point, which <laughs> yeah. in my world, we don't have any clearly clinical t-shirts maybe that's a thing that, that will be happening <laughs> you might want to add that clearly clinical breath mints i don't know could be a thing um, right but i'm glad you bring up that point because in this conversation we're talking about that extension of our work and of ourselves professionally into different domains and mm-hmm. so let's talk about the ethics here because i think mm-hmm. this is one of the things that's very scary for people we just talked about kind of the the legal things to consider mm-hmm. uh, but let's talk about the ethics the APA, NASW, AAMFT, 
all of them have social media policies. What are the ones that really stand out to you in your consideration of having this more public persona? Mm-hmm. So I think the one that is that comes up most often is managing multiple relationships, right? So I think, you know, if you are somebody who is doing direct clinical work and also doing some of this more public work, then it is very important for you to have a couple of things in place. So I think it is important to have in your intake paperwork a social media policy. Um, so Dr. Keely Combs is a psychologist in uh, California who has done a lot of great work around helping their to get their social media game really up in terms of protecting themselves. And so in your social media policy, you want to have that you don't friend or follow um, any of your current clients or past clients, right? Because I don't think, I think, you know, that may be up for grabs for people, but in my mind, the client relationship really never ends. And so you don't want to have them thinking that a year after they terminate, you're going to like follow them on Twitter, Um So I think having that in your paperwork is really important, but not just having it in your paperwork, also spending some part of that intake process going over that with them in the session, right? To let them know like, hey, there's a good chance I could pop up on your suggested follows field Um, or even letting them know, you know, like I do have a public, you know, social media presence. And so um, I'm not going to follow you or interact with you in any kind of way using social media. And it's not a good way to communicate with me in terms of clinical things. So really letting them know that email or phone or in session is the best way for them to talk with you about any clinical concerns, not sending you a private message on Facebook. I think that's an important point. And I think many people have that have a personal versus professional profile have struggled with that. I know many therapists opt to have a, a personal profile Mm -hmm. on Instagram or social or any kind of social media, but often will use some kind of pseudonym to protect their identity. Can you talk about that distinction between a personal presence and a professional presence and how to draw the line? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think I've seen the same thing, Beth. Um, and I think that that's a good idea to try to, you know, make sure your personal, quote unquote, pages are not public if you don't want clients to find them. But I also think that you should not assume that anything that you put on the internet, even under your personal pages, is safe. Um, because screenshots exist, you, you know, lots of different things can happen on the internet. And so, of course, take all of the measures that you can in terms of making yourself unsearchable using a pseudonym, you know, like not friending or following anybody that you know through client relationships. But again, be mindful that anything that you share could end up somewhere. And so I highly encourage people not to share anything online um, that you would not be comfortable talking with a client about um, because you just never know where stuff can end up. And so that would be my suggestion. I think that was a very important point. Can you say that again? I think that was one that needs to be highlighted. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So I wouldn't share anything online, even if you think you have put all of the safeguards in place, I would not share anything online that you would not be comfortable with a client seeing. So, you know, if that means pictures of your kids or you out, you know, drinking with your friends on a Saturday night or you on the beach, you know, in in the swimsuit, like if you would not be comfortable with a client seeing those things and perhaps bringing that up to you in a session, then I would suggest not sharing it online. 
we live in a very different world than mm-hmm. clinicians were operating in 20, 30 years ago. Um, recent research among psychology grad students found that over 80% had an online social media networking profile and 33% of those specifically use Facebook. So we're talking about a new generation of clinicians that have a very active social media presence. And then also the complication that their supervisors who are more seasoned in the field are less likely to be familiar mm-hmm. with social media policies. I've seen this play out in uh, social media groups daily, where somebody yes. overshares about a client. Like, what, is, what are some of your takeaways for social media engagement um, when we're not, well, with the caveat of what you just said about anything, whether it's personal or professional, if it's on the internet, it's never safe. But right. beyond that kind of consideration and caveat... What are some of the uh, ethical considerations you keep in mind when engaging in social media, even if it's not about blogging or podcasting and, and this mm-hmm. really public presence? Yeah, so I I have stumbled into this presence on social media where people are now like stealing my photos and making uh, like fake pages. Um, and I don't I haven't even discovered how to like stop that at this point because, you know, my picture is a lot of places. And so I don't know that there's a way to scrub my image. Um, but that has made me think about like not sharing any pictures of my family. Um, so I had previously and have now taken all of those down. Um, so it hasn't even been as much of me having a conversation with like clients as it is just wanting to protect my family and my safety. Um, so that is something to consider. And I think in Facebook groups, because there a lot of therapists who are you know convened in one space it feels really easy and very slippery to kind of launch into a consultation space when we know that Facebook should not be used for consultation Mm -hmm. you know and so sometimes we think we're asking vague questions but the rule of thumb I think for you before you share anything should be if my client read this would they be able to recognize themselves in this statement, even if I didn't use their names, right? And so if your client could recognize themselves, then that likely means you're sharing too much information. And so, you know, I think the better thing would be to find colleagues in your area who you have either formal or informal consultation group to talk about difficult issues. You know, I definitely, like we've talked about before, whether you're working in clinical work or doing some of this other work, we can't do those things alone. And so teams Teams are really critical. And so I think, you know, it can be easy to think about doing some consultation in a Facebook group, but that's not appropriate. You know, I don't know if this has happened with any therapist Facebook groups, but I do know there was a lawsuit at one point for a group of nurses who had shared information about a client in a Facebook group who got Mm -hmm. in trouble um, for sharing too much you know, private health information. And so it would be easier to send a message to say, hey, can I consult with you about this over the phone or um, via email securely, as opposed to like putting out too much information in a in a Facebook group about a client. Again, that rule of thumb, if, if my client read this, would they be able to recognize themselves in this statement? How do you manage that in a public presence? So for example, let's pretend that someone's specialization is working with eating disorders and body image and they start a blog and they Mm -hmm. want to share about a client experience. How -hmm. does somebody do that? How do they effectively bleach that information to make it shareable? Mm -hmm. So I, I have, I think, an even higher standard than our ethics codes 
require, you know, so ethics codes, I think, typically require you to like remove identifiable information and that kind of thing. I personally feel like that is too risky for me. Um, and so I don't ever share anything about like I don't use clients as examples. I think it once you have done work enough. It is easy for you to come up with like your own fake characters, Mm -hmm. right? You know, so to come up with case studies of like, you know, symptoms that you've seen across the board, you know, so even if you come up with one or two that you kind of use in all presentations and all of your blogs, I think that that it is a far better idea than, you know, trying to like, oh, you're in Houston. So you change the location to Chicago or they're a nurse and you change them to being a teacher. Like, I don't think that that is sanitizing enough. And so I think if at all possible to just stay away from even using client examples, um, because again, I think if your client could recognize themselves like, oh, I know I'm not a teacher, but this still sounds very much like me, you know, you've not done enough to de-identify that client. And so I think sometimes we think we're taking the necessary precautions and it really isn't enough. So I would encourage people to just stay away from it altogether. Wonderful. I think that guidance is really helpful. So going back to having a public presence, even the American Psychological Association, I checked this morning, they have 563,000 followers on <laughs> Facebook. Right. So let's talk about what it means to operate a public social media page, whether that's Instagram, Facebook, whatever it is, and it has that professional grounding. What are some of the ethical guidelines that professionals need to keep in mind and, and what kind of information they're sharing? Mm-hmm. So, you know, the other thing I think we need to talk about, Beth, is that the ethical codes don't always keep up with the technology, right? We know mm-hmm. there's a new, I mean, Clubhouse just came out like more than a year, a little over a year ago. And that wasn't on anybody's radar. So technology doesn't always, I mean, the ethics codes don't always keep up with the pace of technology. And so, you know, I really do think that, and I think that, you know, some of APA, I think, is at least working on like task force and things to try to keep up with some of this. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that it's always doing a great job. Um, and so, you know, some of the things I would encourage you to to pay attention to is turning off private messages, if at all possible. Um, or if you can't, a lot of the platforms allow you to set up like a robo reminder or an auto response that can say something like this page is not monitored by professionals. It is not appropriate to use this space for clinical emergencies. Please, you know, dial 911 or here's the number for the crisis text line if you need to connect with someone urgently. So turning off your private messages or having some kind of responder like that, I think is really important. I also think that it's important to be mindful of the kinds of things that you are sharing on social media in the name of education, right? So I think that there are things that we can share like tips and strategies and those kinds of things that are pretty straightforward. But I think that sometimes we can ask these like probing converse, probing questions or like these posts that really open up trauma Mm, for people, right? And then we are not giving them anything to consider that. And so I think that that is something that you have to be really mindful of that in your mind, you may be offering, you know, what you think is like a good idea to help somebody think through. But if you're not also offering them containment for whatever you've opened up, then it's probably not something that you want to share. I think that's an important point to consider of what's the impact of what you're sharing and basically not being able to provide the wraparound support. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm glad you brought up that point. 
One of the other things I think comes up, so I'm looking at the NASW, ASWB, CSWE, and CSWA standards for technology. So we have all of the social work biggies that came together and created standards. And they say specifically, when social workers use technology to provide information to the public, they shall take reasonable steps to ensure the accuracy and validity of the information they disseminate. So this is in the social work guidelines. This is also an AAM, so excuse me, AAMFT. It's also an APA across the board, this idea of accuracy of information. How Mm -hmm. do you view that? And where are kind of the slippery slopes with that? Mm -hmm. So this is one of the reasons why I think it is really important for licensed professionals to be on these platforms, Um, because most often, of course, not all, but most often we are engaged with, you know, up to date research. We are using things that, you know, we've been trained to do that we have seen be effective for our clients. Um, You know, if we're in supervision, these are conversations we're having with our supervisors. And so there are certain things that we can share because of our training that are helpful for people. But there are a lot of people who are calling themselves things like um, narcissistic abuse coaches or, you know, trauma coaches. And there is no credentialing for any of that, right? And so I have seen a lot, and I'm sure you have too, like a lot of things and I'm like, oh my gosh, that's just too much, right? Or that's not accurate. And so I think it is, again, since it is in our best interest to be able to share some of this information on social media, we do have a responsibility of making sure that we are double checking references that we are sharing um, and making sure that we are not sharing information that has been like disputed in the field or is outdated. Um, and so I really, you know, try to work in terms of like making sure I'm kind of reading journals, although there's not time to do all of that all of the time. Um, but staying abreast of the kinds of things that I'm talking about. And I think that that's something else that we want to consider. You don't have to be on social media talking about all the things, right? So if you are somebody who specializes in grief, or if you specialize in eating disorders, stick to that thing, because it is more likely that you have the depth and breadth of training in your area of expertise. And I think sometimes this is where people get themselves caught up is because they're trying to talk about all the things, as opposed to like, just staying in your niche and really talking about the thing that you are competent in, you know, that is also something that our ethical codes encourage us to do is to act from our areas of competence, you know, so you don't want to be on social media talking about things that you're not trained in doing clinical work in. I'm glad you bring that up. We actually just released a podcast episode on that very topic featuring Miranda Palmer discussing this idea of niching and Mm -hmm. the importance of really making sure we've established competence before we hang a sign basically saying this is what I do and that that would stretch then into our engagement publicly so i i subscribe to there's a service called help a reporter out and if they're oh, see- yes. right let's talk about that so they seek people to write on particular topics or to interview on topics and so someone at whatever agency or company will say i want somebody that is an expert in uh, Um, working with gay men um, around shame. And then they seek 
people to submit resumes or proposals to get that opportunity to do the speaking engagement. The difficulty with these then is that you could have people raising their hands for topics that they're actually not specialized in. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that through an ethical lens and why we need to be really careful with that concept? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I had that on my list to discuss. I'm glad you brought it up. Um, So Help a Reporter Out is an incredible service, I think, especially if you are wanting to kind of, you know, dip your toe in like doing a little bit more media work. Um, But it can also be very overwhelming and it is easy, I think, to kind of lose yourself in the field, (laughs) in the sea of requests that come out. And so it is important for you to only respond to um, requests that are in your area of expertise, because what happens is the reporters are looking for like uh, quotes but they often don't have enough time to like come back to you to like do any fact checking yep. or that kind of thing. And so if you don't really know what you're talking about, you could be quoted in some magazine that gets like lots of coverage. And then you have shared information that is either not factual or harmful to the community that you're maybe wanting to help. And so I think you just never know where your words are going to end up. So you really want to do your due diligence in responding to only the requests that are going to be a good fit for you and that you would be comfortable backing up your claims you know so if something if somebody else reads it and says hey this was an interesting point that Beth made I want to contact her for another story and now you don't really believe what you told me or what you were quoted as saying in that other piece then you are um, in some ways damaging your credibility in the field so it is really important to only uh, reply to requests that are things that you um, really have an expertise in. Thank you for making that point. The other consideration too is the uh, the source. So where is the information going? I've talked with mm-hmm. professionals before that will say yes to an interview or they'll contribute information and the the poster that's seeking it is anonymous. And, mm-hmm. and, or it's like, oh, it's on ra- website. And then you click on the website and you're like, oh no, like, <laughs> I don't want to be associated with that. But so right. I think for any of us making sure we're doing our due diligence of taking that extra step of making sure that whoever we're engaging with is actually consistent with how we see our image and we're proud of that association. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, the other thing I think with Help a Reporter Out and in just other interviews, again, uh, reporters are often acting with tight deadlines and so you know you want to try to provide them with like accurate sound bites and not a whole bunch of information like you don't want to give reporters references to check and you know like you know this 20,000 2017 like they're not going to do all of that you know so you want to deliver them quick information um and that is relevant relevant and uh accurate but you also know that they may not have time to come back to you to do any fact checking. So you want to be sure that what you're offering them the first time is actually accurate. I think that's a very good point. So you and I have done now a little discussion about the legal considerations and then also some ethical considerations. Stepping into the, I guess, real intimacy of this process, as you look back on your own experience, is there anything that stands out that you wish you'd known when you first started? Hmm. You know, I think that there's so much 
I think and the same thing can be said for clinical practice as with like podcasting and all this other stuff is that there's nobody that trains you like in the marketing um, of, of what all of this looks like. And so I wish I had more skill or had brought on team members who really understood the marketing piece sooner than I did. Um, because I think when you, you know, and I'm sure a lot of people listening may have this, this same story when you're like working really hard to build a practice and you're just hoping the phone will ring and you know that kind of thing you don't always understand like what kinds of things it takes to really get your name out there but I think things like podcasting and blogging are the very things because so many people are finding us on social media or a google search you know you can uh, rely on like word of mouth and just referrals but a lot of people are going to find you from the internet you know like at this point I do still have a very small caseload, but my caseload is made up entirely of people who heard me on the podcast, you know, and so I think you just never know where that thing could go Um, and blogging and either running your own podcast or being a guest on other people's podcasts give you an excellent opportunity to speak to the kinds of people that you want to serve. And so going back to our earlier conversation around why it's important to give that knowledge away, it's not only important because there are so many people who can't make it across the doorstep of our offices. It's also important if you are interested in growing your practice, if you have one, because that is how people are more likely to find you. One woman to another, having been, you know, conditioned, I think, to be small. I think women Mm. in particular are conditioned to not take up too much space. I know for me, my consideration in founding Clearly Clinical was kind of this process of why not me? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I had this idea and a group of colleagues and I were talking about this one day and someone said, well, what about podcasting? And then I'm like, we could do it for continuing ed and then we could do, you know, and it just took off from there. Yes. Knowing that our our field in particular is dominated by women, what would you say specifically to women that are going through this process of jumping into this more entrepreneurial, uh, expanded presence of their clinical work? Mm -hmm. So I think... Uh, jumping and trusting that the net will appear is is probably one of the best ways to kind of describe this work. You know, I was also very anxious in putting out my first episodes of the podcast. Like I still probably have not listened to any of my episodes all the way through because the sound of my voice feels so grating. And I think a lot of people feel that same way. A lot of podcasters have shared that same thing. Um, But I think trusting that your community will respond, right? So even though I may not love the sound of my voice so many people have sent us messages saying that they found my voice soothing or they find it really comforting right um and so I think when you feel really anxious you have to take yourself out of the center of it because there is a message that may come through you but it's not for you Mm. one of my business coaches told me that and I have never forgotten that that you know when we are kind of anxious and in our heads is because we're centering ourselves too much we're not thinking about the people who need to hear the conversations that you might have on your podcast or who might read the blog that you are hesitating in writing you don't know what kinds of knowledge you have that might change somebody else else's life. And so really focusing on the people that you are hoping to serve, I think is a really great way to not play small. You know, I don't, I don't even know if I so much had the conversation of why not me as, as I did, like, 
I have to do this now. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think I ever questioned like, why not me? It, it just felt like all the stars aligned and it was like, okay, this is clearly the thing or one of the things that I need to do in my life, right? That, that there's a reason why this vision came to me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in one of my podcast episodes, I, I don't remember which number it is at this point, but I shared like some of the lessons that I've learned from podcasting. And one of the things was that it can be really hard to explain your vision to other people and you have to be really careful with that because people and we know of course as therapists right um, people will respond to your vision in ways that are about their own stuff right about their own sense of insecurities or the the chances that they didn't take and so you have to be very careful and precious with your vision because there's a reason it, it is for you right so other people might not get it they might not understand it but it is for you to carry out and then create the team around yourself who can help you to bring that vision to fruition. I think there's a lot of power in what you just said. Now, moving into the success that you've had with this very public professional persona, how has that shifted over the years? And you and I were talking before we were recording about the intimacy that a following has with you. So whether that's through blogging or through a resource you've created or podcasting, workbooks, books, people hear your voice. Mm-hmm. How has that shifted over time? And how do you cope with that? Because I, at least I know for me, that wasn't something I even thought about. Like, it was like, I'm going to mm-hmm. put something out in the world and hope that anybody cares. And then it like completely took off. And then it's, and then people know how I sound and they, they really listen <laughs> to what I say and then sometimes completely disagree with me as well. Yeah. So how do you balance that just for yourself, I'm curious. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think that there's something even more intimate about podcasting because we are in their ears, right? And so that does form, I think, a very close parasocial kind of a relationship, right? That they, a lot of people describe me as like their friend in their head, right? And so even though I'm giving this disclaimer, like, you know, I am a therapist, but I'm not your therapist, you know, people, you do have to make space for the fact that people will project, you know, of course, onto you and like create these relationships with you in their head. And so I think you do have to be careful for that. Um, So some of the things that I have done is really kind of um, put barriers to reaching me, right? So there are all kinds of, you know, requests for speaking or like, I have a question about this. And of course I want to be responsive, but I can't do the work that I need to do if I'm like always responding Mm -hmm. to these (laughs) emails. And so having assistance um, to help me with those kinds of things that, you know, I've given them like, okay, this is what I would say. And now they can share it with anybody who's emailing it. I think is really critical to look at how you're going to create some boundaries for yourself to be able to protect your sanity, but also to protect the integrity of the work, you know, I think when you have the kinds of conversations like we do on the podcast, you can expect that people, you know, we've gotten emails with people sharing lots of information, right? And, you know, wanting um, either to work with me, even though I haven't accepted new clients for years. Um, So I think, again, it comes back to being able to share resources, being able to kind of tie somebody up nicely in an email and say, you know, I'm really sorry that you're struggling with this. Dr. Joy is not accepting any new clients, but here are some 
therapist in your area, she suggests that might be a good fit for you. Um, you know, so something like that. I think that you have to something that I had not considered was like how important email communication and like being able to um, engender this sense of warmth and care for my community, even if it's not me directly communicating with them. But I do think you're going to need those boundaries if you embark upon, you know, some of this more public work. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think the the importance of boundaries can't be overstated. And mm-hmm. one of the other questions I have for you in now, you know, here we are talking about this work. This this is a topic that's really meaningful for you in wanting to encourage other people to share their knowledge. Why is that? Why why is that that for you this is really important? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think, you know, like we mentioned, like I think ethically it is important for us to do. My training kind of calls me to do this work. And again, I think when we think about the stigma related to mental health, the barriers to access, the insurance issues, like all of these mm-hmm. things, there are just so many people who are never going to make it to our offices or into one of our groups. And so, you know, when you think about being able to share your knowledge in a workbook, and I think a lot of therapists get um, really overwhelmed by this idea of like, well, what would I say? But I think if you think about the work that you've done with clients, there's likely interventions that you're suggesting over and over again. There are questions that you are likely asking with lots of your like lots of your clients. Thinking about the things that you find yourself repeating over and over again are the thing that somebody, if they ask you to give a five minute talk on something without any preparation, what could you talk about? Like that is the place to go for where you might start for some of this other kind of work. You know, so whether that be a workshop or a workbook or a course, are those kinds of things. Thinking about the areas that you find yourself repeating, I think would be a great place. And to not overwhelm yourself so much and and to trust that there are people, you know, you're likely not going to be the first therapist doing any of this, right? So I think also leaning on colleagues and and asking questions um, like who do you work with to kind of protect your intellectual property or how do I get Mm -hmm. started building a course for this idea that I have you know trusting that your community will support you in those kinds of things I think is really important as well I call that soapboxing I when I talk with perspective interviewers for the podcast I say what what's your soapbox like if you had Ah. like what is it that you really want to say to clinicians what are some myths or some misconceptions or what do you want to lift up and and I think my uh, my interpretation of it now is that that soapbox is really our brand can you talk a bit about the idea of having a personal brand because I think for many people that feels very weird to Mm -hmm. see yourself as a brand Yeah, again, there's so many things that we just were not taught in grad school, right? Like we are taught the clinical piece, but we are rarely taught anything about the business piece and definitely not any of this branding, marketing, Mm -hmm. all this world that we find ourselves in now. Uh, But I think the when you think about your brand, I think you're thinking about or what I'm thinking about is what are people saying about me when I'm not in the room? Right. You know, like what is Dr. Joy known for? How might Dr. Joy answer this question? What kinds of things, you know, is she really well skilled in talking about and doing with the communities that she works with? And so I think, um, you know, in this world that we find ourselves 
we cannot be afraid to show up in these online spaces and in the world when it's safe to do that again um, to talk about psychological science, right? Like it, it is just such precious information, especially for the world we are living in today, right? You know, I think that there's so much knowledge that we have that can help people live healthier lives, fuller lives, have better relationships with themselves and with other people. And it just doesn't make sense for us to just be sharing that one-on-one or in the clinical work that we're doing in our offices. And so I think when you're thinking about building your brand what kind of problem are you wanting to solve in the world and what kind of knowledge do you have that you can package in some way either through a podcast or in interviews or through a workbook that can help to solve that problem for other people i'm glad you bring up that idea of a pain point or a problem and that many brands start there um Mm -hmm. and and i I, as you said kind of that challenge that we learn these skills but then we very rarely have opportunity to consider, well, how do you start a private practice? How do you start a group practice? How do you start writing books? You know, I, I'm watching my colleagues writing books going, how do you do that? Like, it's just like <laughs> mind bending to me. Um, right. So I'm curious for you, you've mentioned your team. So you talked about a lawyer, you talked about business coaches, um, you've talked about just colleagues in general, and also that idea of marketing, who else is on your team, if we haven't mentioned them of like, basically how, how it, uh, how it takes shape for someone Mm -hmm. to do what you do, who does that involve? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mentioned my husband is my executive producer. Um, I have a producer who helps me to kind of think through what kinds of topics we're going to cover on the podcast. And we're also hiring for an assistant producer right now to, uh, again, assist with all of that. Um, I have a business manager who also is kind of slash virtual assistant who manages, um, you know, all of that incoming information. Um, we have a, a virtual assistant for the info at therapy for black girls email address. So somebody who responds like to all of the public facing kinds of things that might come through our inbox. Um, I have a community manager and a community assistant who take care of the community of people in therapy for black girls. So they are the ones um, who are posting the things on our social media pages. They are responding in comments. Um, We also have a private community within therapy for black girls called the sister circle. Um, And they are also responsible for, you know, responding to things that people share there, sharing our podcast episodes, sharing resources, keeping those conversations going and planning events for the community. Um, Is that it? (laughs) And probably more (laughs) people. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like that is our, that's our core team. That's our core team. What was it like for you to start entrusting other people, like to send an email on your behalf? (laughs) Tell me about that. Because that is, that is something that it takes a lot. Like that's a process. Talk talk to me about that. Yeah, that definitely took some time, but it wasn't very long before I recognized that I could not do it all. You know, when I first started the podcast and the directory, I still had my full time job at at Clark Atlanta. And so it wasn't very long before I realized there's no way I can keep up with all of this by myself. And so I found my virtual assistant who is now my business manager through a recommendation from another therapist, you know, and I felt like that was a really good way to vet um, somebody who like knew the kind of work that therapists do. And, you know, you have to be careful with client information and all of those things. And so I think when you can get recommendations from other people, particularly other therapists, that's a great way. 
I've also seen lots of therapists either start themselves or like create these virtual assistant companies, right? Because they are intimately aware of the kinds of like problems that therapists have in their in their private practices and have now created like v- virtual assistant agencies only for other therapists. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's a, a very cool thing um, to check out as well. You mentioned this team of people that are responding to emails. And I would imagine for you, your private practice clients have a different way to access you than Mm -hmm. your than your email address, for example, that's public. Can you speak for a minute about things like business associate agreements and the importance of having kind of structure around who you're working with and the confines of that work to protect prospective client confidentiality? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So only my virtual assistant has any access to like my schedule in terms of my clients. Um, and so that that would be the only uh, other person on my team who has anything to do with like black clinical practice. So the rest of the therapy for black girls team deals with like the more public facing information. And my virtual assistant and I are the only ones who really handle um, any client information. And she of course has, you know, been trained in HIPAA and does the, the courses and that is a part of her contract as well. Um, and because she has worked with other therapists, she is intimately aware of how important it is to keep all of that information confidential. Awesome. I think that piece is sometimes easy to forget that as we start to expand our reach, need to make sure we keep those kind of boundaries in place and consider those. My goodness, Dr. Joy, you and I have flown through an hour together. And we've <laughs> talked about so much. I mean, you've talked about kind of your vision and how you started doing what you do now that social media uh, and social justice uh, convergence, if you will, and and also these considerations for how to do this in a way that's ethical. You have such a presence in our community. Your work has been so impactful, I think, not just for the people that are listening as prospective um, consumers, if you will, of clinical information. But I know for me, it's been inspirational to watch you and see how you've done what you do. So so thank you. Thank you for being a source of inspiration for other people in our field and for taking the time to do this. Um, how do people learn more about your work uh, and and any resources you recommend to our listeners? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you can follow me. Oh, we've talked about social media, yep. so you can follow me on social media. I'm at Hello Dr. Joy across all social media platforms. But if you want to follow more specifically the Therapy for Black Girls platforms, then you can find that on Instagram and Facebook. And then our Twitter handle is Therapy for the number four B Girls. Um, and the website, of course, for that is therapyforblackgirls.com. Um, like I mentioned, Dr. Keely Combs is a great resource in California. Um, Um, She is, of course, based in California, but does like online trainings and has lots of resources for people who want to figure out what they can do in this world of social media and online work, but in a way that is very ethical. So I would definitely encourage people to check that out as well. Wonderful. This has just been a wonderful time to spend with you. Thank you again for taking time out from from your podcast to join our podcast and share this information with us, Dr. Joy. Thank you so much for having me, Beth. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.